Welcome back to the Protest Coverage Podcast. I'm Lucy Baptiste, the Visual Imagery Editor for Protest Coverage, and our guest this week is not your average 31-year-old. Our Editor-in-Chief, Kevin Xavier, learned quickly that Just Davis does not want to be put in a box. She is more than just one thing. They are a Brooklyn activist of some renown, an actor of even greater recognition, and a survivor of cystic fibrosis, a diagnosis that cuts most people down before their 20th birthday. But they are more than that too. Jess breaks all the molds and stereotypes of demonstrators depicted on television. She is direct and unapologetic. They aren't supposed to be here and that may be her greatest strength. She has nothing to lose and everything to gain. So listen along with us for the 14th installment of our podcast. I am Lucy Baptiste, and our interview with Jess Davis starts right now. Jess, you grew up on the West Coast, correct? Yes. Tell me a little bit about that and what brought you to New York. So I grew up in Oakland, California. Growing up in Oakland was a very, like, you grew up fast experience, like, I grew up in kind of like a suburb outside of Oakland, and then my family moved to Oakland when I was young. So I had two experiences of like being in a suburb and then being in more of a city metropolitan area, and then the effects of like how you're treated as a black person in both. But that really informs like my life living in Oakland in a, in a large way. You know, like I feel like obviously you're impacted by your environment as a kid, but for me, it just—it felt like Oakland was such a—it's—it's it's such an influential place, the Bay Area in general, and I think California. But just—I just felt so like part of my definition as a person is like being from Oakland. But I came out to New York about eight years ago. I'm an actor by trade. My passion is acting. My passion is film. I love film. I did grow up as an actor on the stage, but I, I love film so much. So I initially came out here to do film and to act. Um, I auditioned for NYU's Tisch School, but Tisch is stupid, <laughs> and I didn't get it. <laughs> NYU is dumb, <laughs> so fuck them. Uh, you, but look at you now. Yeah. Seems like it worked out. Yeah, no, I think, I think it, it actually, even though that didn't turn out how I wanted it to, it is much better, I think, uh, that I didn't get accepted because it made me work so much harder on my own without having like the crutch of school. Um, and I'm not a big proponent of um, institutional education anyway because I think that that's also very oppressive, especially to communities of color and people who are um, uh, affected by poverty. Um, so it's just another way to kind of trap people and oppress them. So I was like, why do I want to go to school again? when I can learn of my own volition. I'm, a, I'm an intelligent person. I, I can go to a library. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Goodwill Hunting is like, why are you going to spend $150,000 on an education that you could have spent in uh, $1.50 in late fees at the library? Um, and I'm like, that makes so much sense. 
you know. Now how about them apples? How about the apples? <laughs> I love that fucking movie. It's yeah, so that's great. It's a great film. It's so good. But it but it just made me like I'm such an independent person that it just seemed like why do I need to rely on anything in order to get me somewhere? So that's kind of how I've lived my life. And New York kind of taught me that too, you know, in a lot of ways. Because you have to be really self-sufficient and reliant to kind of stand in New York on your own. I mean, as much as I had family here, I, I put a hard boundary between how much I would go to them for help. Um, and I, yeah, I, I had to really scrape by. and But I didn't do it oppressively so. Like, I hate the idea that people... You need to like climb on top of people to get somewhere. And like, my ancestors went through that with slavery. Why do I want to enact that again? You know, it was it was very much part of my learning process as a independent person moving to New York. You know, it's like okay, you're already independent, and then this is how you can be even more successful as an independent person. You know, and New York gave me all these tools. So uh, I'm like super fortunate to. To have had the fortitude to keep up with my dream of moving to New York and like making my shit happen out here. Acting has it's it's going steady. I've I've got a few Netflix roles under my belt. You're being bashful. I'm being. It's not as much as I want. <laughs> I want it to be a lot more impactful, but I'm super hard on myself, and so I feel like I can't boast about something that I don't have yet. You know. But I, I, I have put in a lot of work, so I'm trying to give you kinder to myself with that. But. And just to reset for the audience, we're chatting with Jess Davis, activist, actress, fashion designer. Yes, I do that too. <laughs> that is and we are here at Brooklyn Borough Hall, just across the steps, as you hear the skateboards clap around in the background, yes. just across the steps from where Jess gave an impassioned speech the other night on a very chilly November evening yes. with the People's March. Yes. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that experience and the work that you've done with the People's March? So my experience with People's March in general has just been very empowering. I learned to take ownership of my voice, especially as a black woman, because I find that our society definitely, I mean obviously is oppressive towards communities of color, but it doesn't give you the station to speak and really find yourself powerful. You know, we tend to think that that's like arrogant and conceited. So being a part of the People's March, seeing all the other speakers really embrace their voice and not apologize for being loud or apologize for taking space is just really influential to me and inspiring. My giving the speech I gave the other night was definitely through those people that I've been marching with, you know, in that it was definitely keeping in mind their power and their voices and their passion. And I, I actually wrote that speech the, that morning. I was finding it really hard to put the words together like the couple days before because I was like, I'm going to have the speech a couple days before so I don't have to worry about it. But I'm a person that's kind of driven by pressure, so... I procrastinate and then... I know that's right. Yeah. I know that's right. I feel like that's journalism to a T. It's like, deadline is tomorrow and nothing is done. Now you have, like, all of the pressure to do it. But um, then you get that buzz, I'm sure, while you, you're writing the speech, you, right? Yeah, like, I'm getting there. I'm Yeah, getting you're it, getting there. You know? It's like something just happens and it clicks. I've learned through my artistry and, you know, like, I do write and I used to do journalism in, in school. 
like high school, which is probably not relevant, but I understood from that experience of coming from like this place of like pressure, how to manage it. And so it's like I, I allow myself to just feel things, you know. And so I gave a speech at 14th Street before we got off, before the mass arrest happened November 4th. And that was just me winging it. I, I was upset and I just spoke from a heartfelt place and a very, like an anger place. I used the anger. But for this speech, I wanted it to be more poignant and more riddled with information. So I took time and I thought about, like, we're talking about qualified immunity. How can I reach people and talk about qualified immunity in a, in a way that pe it'll land on people? And one of the ways is to, is to humanize qualified immunity. You know, um, it's an element that can murder. You know, it's not just this thing on paper. It's something that's actively killing people. So when you give it some kind of humanity or some kind of, like, being presence, I think people can understand how harmful it is, you know. So I had to bring up that it killed this 17-year-old girl and her grandmother, Ariana Stanley Monet Jones, and that it protected the, the men in uniform who, who abused and shot Jacob Blake and Roxanne, Roxanne Moore. That is an active participant just like those police were. You know, right. qualified immunity is active. It's not a passive thing that we can just stare at, you know, on the sheet of paper. So humanizing that element brought my speech to life when I was writing it. Um, you know, I, um, it's fascinating to hear you say that you struggled in writing it or struggled in Sorry, producing in producing <laughs> yeah. uh, in front of the audience because we've shot you speaking on a few different occasions in lives and your command of and presence and confidence is next level. Oh, I'm sure you. a lot of that comes from your acting background. But yeah. it's just really interesting for me <laughs> to know to hear that you were maybe a little nervous oh, going yeah. into it oh, and yeah. because I guarantee no one no who one was saw there that. Oh, that's felt good. that. That's good because um, I always feel like I'm fucking up up there. I'm like, <laughs> no, look, yo, <laughs> it, it was powerful. It was emotional. It was raw and it was real mm -hmm. to your career as an actor. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that your outspoken, unapologetic mm -hmm. activism in this movement affects the roles you may be able to acquire? I'd say that's another double-edged sword, too, because I would love it for it to elevate me to a place where people can see a dedication and, like, oh, okay, we can see this, this actor as this because we've seen the presence, you know, but there's also, like, I don't want to get pigeonholed into just playing, like, the badass powerhouse all the time because that's not the only thing I can do, and... I don't always feel that way, to be honest with you. You know, I, I'm, I'm able to transition, and I can, I'm, I'm a, I, I like to now clout my, or not, you know, stroke on my ego a little bit and say I am a pretty good performer. I'm a pretty good actor. I put in a lot of time and I dedicate myself to the craft, so I can switch and I can make it seem like I got my shit together. But inside, that's not the case. <laughs> um, so, you know, and. One of the reasons I 
became a part of this movement was because of acting. Like, I see so much white supremacy and white power structure in the industry. And I was co-signing on that for so long. And I felt in, complicit in that, you know? And I'm oppressed by it. Like, my roles have been, like, like when I was on The Punisher, I was hooker number two. I had a full scene in lines. They cut it. But it was just, like, that's as a black woman. I'm a hooker in the industry, you know? And, of course, you have other actor, black actresses and women of color who are actors who play other roles, of course. But you see a lot of that role. You see a lot of you're a prostitute, you're a hooker, you're a sex worker. And it's not like, oh, these are powerful roles. They're like one-liners where you're off in the distance, you know? They're not highlighting the struggle and the adversity in a drug addict who happens to be a woman of color. They're just using you as a prop from that society has labeled you. So I, I really needed to be a part of this to expose the industry as well. That they can't go untouched either. Like, this is something that they have perpetuated in a lot of ways, too. And that's the message that I want everyone who comes to the marches, who hears what we have to say, to take away from. It's like, as much as, like, I want you to email a senator, don't wait for them to do that for you. You know? And it might, you might get into some illegal shit, but it's for the right reasons the illegality of our actions are deemed by a system that's oppressive. So how illegal are they? We just, we have to take that power back as a community. So yeah, I mean, as, as an actor, I'm always looking at different sides of roles and characters, and I apply that to this. It's like, what are these people thinking? What are the Proud Boys thinking? How do they think they're helping? You know, what are Trump supporters? How do they think they're helping? Why do they think they're not racist? With, you know, like, Try and get inside the mind of the opposition and really understand how you, that's how you communicate. And that's what People's March, when we were out in, um, in, a, in Queens, uh, kind of protesting, against, uh, doing a counter-protest against, um, they had incarcerated persons in a hotel and the community came out to protest them. We came out and we had, we tried to talk to them about, you know, we tried to actively converse with these people about why they were so vehemently against this presence in their community. You know, we're all about um, rehabilitation and, and not pursuing the carceral system for that rehabilitation because it's, it's not in there. But we had to understand where these people are coming from in order to communicate with them. Because if you don't understand, they're just going to get defensive and then they're going to reject the information. So again, as an actor, it's really, it's very, very like useful um, to implement that like all over, that 360 thinking, you know, when you're in a protest. So that's, yeah, that's where I, that's where I stand with my conflating the two, like activism and, and acting is like, they're one and the same, you know? It's, it's, I think it's a protest in itself to be uh, an artist in our society because art is not something that's valued. You know, you're cutting school art in schools and um, artists are widely expected to work for free, you know? So you're undervaluing art in a lot of ways. So to get into art knowing how undervalued you'll be by society I think is a massive protest. You know, and then you just have to further that protest with your community 
Right, and I think it's so interesting, and I was chatting with a colleague, um, shout to Katie Gadowski, our director of photography. She and I were at the Bed-Stuy cleanup, um, Bed-Stuy strong cleanup this morning, and we were just talking about how many interesting individuals we've met that no one knows anything about aside from when they see them at a protest. Right, yeah. You know, there's so many layers like to human man. beings. <laughs> and it's like, you know, oh, this so this person's a scientist. This right, person, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. you never know these things. Their identity just becomes an organizer. Exactly. And you're, you're not giving way. But that's something that we do as humans. We, True. we, we two-dimensional people because it's easier, right? Right. And I think one of the things I always try to do is bring people out of that two-dimensional thinking. You know, so the fact that I can tell you and sit here and be like, I'm super nervous when I go up and talk to people, I think is a good thing because... I agree, because I'm sure plenty of people mm -hmm. feel the exact same way yeah. and they think, oh, well, she's an actress. You're a human just I'm like everyone exactly else. Exactly, a human. And, and I want to drill down on some more of those layers. Yeah. Um, so why don't, what can you tell us about cystic fibrosis oh gosh I didn't even know you're gonna ask that you are a journalist <laughs> um, well I'm gonna die soon um, sorry that's I'm so dark I have such a dark sense of humor and it's because I have CF I was I grew up being told I wasn't gonna live till 16 so like at 7 I'm told this at 9 I go to Disney World because make a wish foundation which is a dumb fucking wish I hate that I did that I was like mom why didn't we go to Paris why didn't we go to Europe? Why did we go to an all-expense-paid trip to fucking Florida? But I, I, having cystic fibrosis is... Uh, it has traumatized me. Um, because CF is a chronic lung disease. Um, where your body produces an excess amount of mucus. And it affects not only the lungs, but other organs in the body. Um, my pancreas, for one, is only 3% functional. So I have to take about 100 pills a day. Yeah, no, it's, and I have to do about like four hours of breathing treatment, so like I wake up dumb early to do my treatments and take my medicine. But because of that, you know, it, it really informs like how I move in life. And I never really, like my brother and I talk about this because he also has CF, um, which is like really rare. Uh, our parents are just great at, you know, finding each other with these, this recessive gene. Right. Um, but... We also we felt so away from the black community because of our CF. We just we felt like we didn't identify as black people for a long time, um, which is it's it's weird to say, but I just felt so removed. Like I'm, you know, I, I used to get, get called an Oreo and stuff because of the way that I talk and the things that I'm into, and and then also having CF is just also further alienating from any community because you know whether you're white, black, brown, you have a disease as a kid everyone just looks at you differently you know so not only was i black i was also diseased so i was the loner in the corner constantly talk about intersectionality right right yeah exactly so those things just they all meet and another thing is like i was met with racism based on having cf because the doctors wouldn't diagnose us with cf because they thought it was only in white children so they accused my mother of making us sick when she was like there's something wrong with her like child they're like, no, you have post you know, postpartum depression. Um, you're a black mom. They thought she was younger than what she was. So my mom looks really young. And so they accused her of making us sick. They wouldn't treat us. And so my brother, like, he, she was changing his diaper in the doctor's office one time when she was trying to get us diagnosed. 
And they're like, that's not normal. The way that his, his bowel smells is not normal. So we finally got tested based on his bowel. As, as a cf or, um, you don't we don't retain fat because our bodies can't process it. So all of the fat comes out in our waist, and that has a very, very distinct smell. And that's how you can really tell, and they, they have testing for that. So that's how we were diagnosed. Um, and then further down the line, as a CF patient, you don't retain fat, so it's hard to gain weight. You look malnourished and emaciated, depending on like what your tolerance for nutrients is. So my brother is having a hard time gaining weight. And with CF, you are predisposed to um, di- being diabetic. So he ended up being uh, having diabetes as well. So he's, he's, di- he's diabetic and has CF. But they accused my mother of not providing enough food for us. And they had Child Protective Services when we were teenagers come out and inspect the house to make sure that there's enough food because they're like, oh, he's not getting enough weight. I'm like, but you know that this is the disease. It's hard for us to gain weight. But still, my black mother was to blame for this. You know, and this is a white doctor that we've had since, since we were diagnosed and he was accusing her of this. It's like, you know my mom. You know my, why are you doing this? So we had social, it was a very traumatic time, but it was just like, that really opened my eyes to how much like white supremacy and like oppression of people of color is rampant in our society because it you can't escape it you know so having cf also just made me feel powerless at times but powerful because i was different and so like i had this other knowing but i also felt like there's not a way for me to fight the medical system like at that time what were we going to do against a social worker? And this is, my mom was a, is a single mom. I mean, my dad was, was in the picture, but they're divorced. You know, so, you know, just, just seeing how, that was like a blatant attack on a black woman, you know, on a black family. And it's the medical industry that is supposed to help you. Everything kind of connects. It's like, I, I, you know, my protesting is like, I keep in mind those fucking doctors when I'm talking and I'm speaking to people. I'm angry, angry about that, because there are other black kids that probably went through that, and they were way more harmed than I was. So I keep that in mind, and so my, so my CF, it, it really does affect like all of my movements uh, as, a, as an activist um, and as a person. But, um, yeah, I got uh, told that at 16 that my life expectancy is going to be 30. I'm 31 now, so I've beaten two of these things, but it's still scary, you know, like I'm, I still don't, you know, CF is still a very unpredictable disease, and so I, I don't really have so much control over, even if I'm super compliant, which I am sometimes, (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, and then, then having to go through the protesting space with COVID and being immune-compromised has been interesting. Um, yeah, so I definitely wanted to ask about that, knowing yeah. your background, and thank you for sharing that yeah, and yeah, having yeah. the courage to share it with us. We appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what kind of gymna- mental gymnastics did you have to go through, if any, to bring yourself out to the first march? Not much. Because I have, as much as I 
am malleable as a person and I, I do have my vulnerabilities and my weaknesses. I have a strong martyr complex. I am like a very, very, like, I will self-sacrifice. I'm trying to actively defeat the martyr complex because I know that that can be damaging to the people you're trying to help. But I have no problem dying. I've, I've had to deal with the concept of death at a very young age. Um, and because I grew up, you know, sick, I know how to deal with sickness. So the fact that COVID is around kind of freaking everybody out, I'm like, <laughs> I deal with the disease every fucking day, <laughs> you know? Not to say that to minimize anyone's fears, but I just saw it as like, you know what? If I, I could possibly get diabetes because that's what CF can do to my body. I've traveled in Europe for three months without any of my medication. My mom does not know that, but she does now if she listens. Sorry, mom. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was just a testament to like my strength and how I can take care of myself without, you know, those things. But it's just like I've been in, you know, extreme medical circumstances. So for me, COVID was just like, well, got to deal with this now. And if it kills me, fine. Like I've already been like ready to die for very many years. Living on borrowed time is what I tell people. So it doesn't scare, like COVID, as much as I understand it's dangerous and it scares people, it doesn't scare me. I am way more affected and scared of, like, my brother getting pulled over by the cops. Way more scared of that. Because he's, like, my heart, like, my best friend. And if I were to lose him into a circumstance where I couldn't protect him, I, I don't know what I would do. You know, like, that's more scary to me. COVID is, like, this little blip. You know, so I don't, I can, I can stand out here and protest and sacrifice that for, you know, so that, that, yeah, so there, there is no mental gym. There are definitely mental gymnastics for my family because they're always scared about something happening to us because, you know, family and then we're sick. But I, I'm just like, no, I can deal with it. I got it. You know, I'm all right. I'll figure it out, you know. You mentioned yeah. that your brother is your heart and you guys have a very close relationship. And you had mentioned to me before we started the interview that he was going to start running mm -hmm. because he did not, you know, he's dealing with the, the diabetes. Yeah. Uh, threats or concerns and he wants to make sure that he's staying active and staying healthy yeah can you tell me again about that conversation and share it with our audience so it's always heart-wrenching to have those conversations because as kids i had to be sat down with my parents about the police presence in our lives as, as black people they're not here to protect you and you got to be very careful so one of the things he wanted to do is start running to, to not only help him on a bodily level, but on a mental level with his depression. It's like it raises the endorphins. It's really good for you. And, you know, he's going back to school for um, to be a psychologist as well. So um, because he is a black man that struggles with mental illness, which is like something we don't talk about in our communities, but he was telling me that he wanted to go running regularly and he's doing it now but how he had to look up different running gear just to be safe in the white community that he lives in he lives in oregon in uh, corvallis which is about two hours south of portland um, yes where oregon state university is yes my go beavers yes I, yes my sister goes there oh does she yes <laughs> that's another whole we're all sick. My sister is, um, she's, she's actually biracial. She's my stepsister. Um, she's half white, half black. And uh, she also has um, 
SMA, which is spinal mus muscular atrophy. So she's not wheelchair bound, but she does use a wheelchair most of the time. So she, and she, she can walk a little bit. Um, she's good at it. She just needs to do it more. I'm talking to her, she listens to this. Um, <laughs> but we're all sick and black, and that's like a different awareness. But because we're sick and black and we want to take care of ourselves, we have to think about running gear that's not going to get a shot at, like a Maude Aubrey. You know, and so he was telling me that he had to find protective gear to identify himself as a as just a community member, just someone in the neighborhood that you know, that you live next to, that's not here to threaten you. You know, and he's already he's already been harassed by this community. He was in Salem, my brother does stand up comedy, and he was walking out of having just done a show with another white friend of his. And, you know, they both were just, like, walking after, talking after the show, and then this truck of white people, white guys, came by and called him a nigger. And so it's like, when that is in your community, yeah, you got to look up how to be protected if you're going for a run, because they'll look for any excuse to just open season you, you know, which is pretty much what we've been through since the inception of this country, is that black bodies have been hunted, black people have been hunted in either a, a bodily way or in a socioeconomic way, you know, uh, redlining one of those ways, you know, segregation, the healthcare system, education, all of these things are ways to hunt black people and really remove the station that they have to be autonomous and have agency over their communities. You know, we rely so much on white supremacy because that's what's in place. I don't think a lot of white parents have to sit their children down and say the cops are a threat and they're not here to protect you. If anything, the cops are more apt to protect a little white girl than they are a little black girl or a little black child. You know, and that's just that's just the reality of our of our society. And it's a harsh reality that as a child you have to be aware of. So in many ways, and that's another thing that we I don't think we talk about a lot is the adultification of black children because of the, um, the socio-political climate of our country is affecting them directly. So yeah, there's just a lot that you have to be aware of as a black person that white people don't. And that's the privilege, you know? Uh, you can have the privilege of knowing about racism but not experiencing it. Racism does not apply to white people. <laughs> you can have social bias, you can have uh, cultural bias, as a black person or a person of color against a white person, but racism is a system of oppression that black people and people of color don't have because we never conquered in that way, in the way that the white community has in, in, in the scope of the world. And that's another thing that people get upset about. They're like, you can be racist toward white people. I'm like, no, you can be biased. You can be prejudiced. I will, I will give that. You know, there are ways to hate a white person, but they're not racist. As a white person, you have way more power, especially as a white man. Oh my God, that's a whole other conversation. Like, I, I, I'm so envious of the power that white men have, and I, I feel so shitty for saying that, because I've had to live a life where I am powerless in a lot of ways. You know, I'm like, if I was like this, like, white, attractive guy, I could totally just, like, dominate. Like, the world would be mine, you know? And it's shitty because it's like that mindset comes from 
the oppression. It comes from feeling weak. It comes from not being afforded some opportunities that you see your peers. And these people are your peers. But you're not taught that they're your peers because of the, the structure of our society. And, and learning about racism in school and learning about um, slavery in school, I think, is also really harmful. Like, we need to teach it, but the way that we've taught it is, is not... Like, they're still asking, like, what are the benefits of slavery in schools when they're teaching kids, you know? Um, it's like, you shouldn't be asking that, you know? And we, 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 need, to, we need to restructure how we teach about these things because it fucked me up as a kid. I was sitting next to my white peer learning about how their ancestors own my ancestors. What kind of complex does that give you as a white kid, you know? You grow up knowing that you're powerful based on the history. I think it also, speaking from my standpoint, it's somewhat dependent upon the environment that you're growing up in. Yeah. Um, some may feel empowered by learning those things. Right. And that's... Some others may turn it inward. It's okay to feel guilty. It's okay to feel guilty. What's not okay is thinking that your guilt is going to save someone's life. White guilt does not save lives. You know, and your 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 fragility does not save lives. Not your fragility, but the like, you know the proverbial. Um, it's just that's something that I've come again, I've come across when I call out white privilege. I'm met with this like denial of its existence. I'm met with the defensiveness, you know, and then not wanting to accept it. And it's like. You can accept your white privilege, accept it, because it's a reality. If you deny reality, that makes you crazy. <laughs> but it's okay, because you're white and no one will say that you're crazy. If a black person does it, you're crazy and we get shot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know qualified immunity is your number one. What would be another cause that you would drive your attention toward uh, that you would like to see ratified as soon as possible? The 1033 program. Because, that again, that's like, they work hand-in-hand. Hand. Qualified immunity, 1033. It's like we're giving you military-grade weapons and training, and then qualified immunity will help protect you when you use that excessively with civilians. Um, it's a horrible cycle of just covering ass. <laughs> that's all they're doing is covering their ass. You know, and so that's what—that's another initiative that we uh, would like to focus on. That we've talked about in all of in a lot of our marches. In the beginning, I spoke about it. The first march I led in Coney Island is 1033 program. Um, another one is the 13th Amendment. As much as people want to hail the 13th Amendment for abolishing slavery, it just redirected it. You know, because who is most of the population in prison that's incarcerated? Black people people of color. So now you're profiting off of black bodies like you would slavery. And you're there it's just the carceral system is just as harmful. And yeah, of course that you not there aren't only black people in there. You know, I want to liberate everybody from the prison system. But the problem is that black people are targeted to be put in prison. To be taken out of society so that we don't have the station to help our communities. If you if you take the black father out of the equation, then you're destabilizing. You know, you're taking the black mother out, you're taking the black child out, you're destabilizing the community. And they said this, they said this back in, who was that, that advisor of Nixon? 
he's like, black people are like a threat to our administration, and so are the hippies. And so they were like, he's like, we knew it was wrong, it, that, that, it was, that this didn't make sense, but we made it make sense. We, we said that black people are the drug addicts, and you know, we, we went into their communities, and, and we, there was heroin and crack and all that. So like, they, they made it clear that they were there to fuck with the black community. They, they, he, he said this like it was not a problem. And that's because white supremacy allowed him to say it. Because everybody operates off of the white power structure and white supremacy. Um, so the 13th Amendment is party to that, you know? We're going to plant shit in your community to make you look like a criminal so that we can justify putting you back into slavery. And I think it was like, I can't remember, it was South Dakota that recently on the ballot they had to abolish slavery. <laughs> that like twenty percent voted for it. Can you believe that? It's the twenty-first fucking century. How are we still there? And this, and then people want to say, well, why are you out protesting? I have, oh my god, I have people in my family, Republicans on my stepfather's side, who complain about protesters who are Trump supporters. I unfriended all of them, and I just do not speak to them. And I am, like, waiting for the moment where I have to go and be in their face and just, like, read them their rights. And I was like, you know, but it, those people exist, and those are the 20% that probably voted for that fucking bill or that, that, um, that initiative or whatever right. it was to abolish it. So it's just like, and I have to, I, again, on kind of touching back on white privilege, I had to explain white privilege to my stepfather. Because he didn't get it. He didn't think he had privilege and didn't grow up with privilege. I'm like, your your dad is a millionaire. His dad worked in the Navy, worked in the Navy and has like a great pension that's good with money. But I was like, that's privilege right there. You got a white man in your family who's your father. That's privilege. And I had to explain to him, like, you, you know, that's based on your family through slavery. Like, we didn't have the 400. There's a 400 year gap. You know, there's no, there's a wealth gap because of slavery that your family benefited from, that black families don't. You know, so that's privilege. That's that's white privilege right there. Based on the fact that you were, didn't go through that oppression, you have the money and you you have the ability to gain that money and those resources. So that was an interesting conversation to have with my family member, my my father, someone I identify as so close to me didn't understand that. And he has black kids and he didn't understand white privilege. Uh, so it's like having these conversations with your family I think is really important too. Not letting your family get away with being prejudiced and being racist, which I think a lot of people do. They're just like, oh, I don't have to see them. I can just, you know. It's like, no, confront that shit. Because that's how we beat it, you know. I want to wait so bad for all these fucking old rich white republicans to die but the but the problem is don't hold back now Jess. come on <laughs> i do i'm like once they die we can actually live and thrive but the problem is you have people people like fucking tommy laren who is part of this generation who's spewing this bullshit so their ideals are not going to die because they're gone their ideals are thriving because they're passing them on to their children that's the problem Sorry, I'm I'm a very radical person. I don't wish death on anybody unless they are horrible people. <laughs> but no, it's just like this idea of how do we take out oppression from our society? 
you know, you're like, okay, if their ideals die with them, then we're good. But they're not, their ideas are not dying with them, you know, and that's the, that's where we have to solve, you know, and we have to have these conversations. So that's why when we're at the People's March, we talk to people because we have to, we have to get into their minds, you know, we have to get into their heart and their soul. Because they've been they've been brainwashed by probably their family, by their environment, by the by the society at large. So you have to communicate with that brainwashing, and that's that's really hard. You know, being out here shouting and chanting and marching—that's not hard. It's actually reaching people on the opposite side. So that's like the hardest thing for me when I'm speaking up there. Is am I reaching people? Is what I'm saying valid? Is what I'm saying gonna actually have an impact? You know, that's the fear I have when I step up there. Is that are people listening? Is this truly reaching someone? You know, so I yeah, I'm terrified that my words are lost or that I'm not saying it correctly. That people are just gonna not absorb. That's the scariest thing. Jess, thank you so much for taking the time. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Any messages, any of your wisdom? I think one thing I want to impress upon people is that we have inherent power. You don't have to search for power from anyone. Don't look to me for this power. Like, I, I, you know, I have my power and I recognize it, but I don't, you don't need to come to me for it. There's, everybody has this power. Everybody has this power to change and to do things differently and to make different choices. Um, so I want, I want people to understand that their power is useful and it's, it's that you need to realize it so that you can make a change. Um, you don't need to look to anyone else to change things. You don't need permission. No one needs this permission to make the world better. So I want people to stop asking for this permission. You know, go feed somebody. <laughs> you know, help someone with health care, mental health care. Listen to people. There's so much power in these little things that we consider trivial and frivolous that aren't. They're actually powerful elements. So use your voice. Know your power. Because everybody has it. You know, you can... It's no, no small, no act is small, you know, no act is small. So that's what I want to leave people with. Um, also, hail Satan. <laughs> uh, dark power. <laughs> the humor is not lost on many of us in the audience. Um, <laughs> Jess, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. I don't want to keep you anymore. I could do this all day, but yes. I know you have stuff to do. And yeah, I got to go to train and shows.